What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's time again for another episode of Kinescope where we look at the early days of live American television. John Suntress here, Gabe Hardman here. Welcome back, William Meyer. Hi, thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining us, William. Absolutely. Thank you, Gabriel. It's a really interesting episode. Uh, we're talking about the television show, You Are There, a very interesting uh, CBS show that started on radio in the late 40s, came to TV in 1950, and became a very important show for very interesting reasons that we're going to discuss today that tie into... Uh, the blacklist that uh, affected uh, movies and television, but really directly and obviously basis of our discussion today, television. Uh, this was a brave show that took a lot of risks, and uh, we'll get into it. Gabe, uh, initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is just one of those shows where, um, you know, it, it, it's they basically took... Uh, a sort of political stand, but did it in a very stealth way that uh, that was sort of unimpeachable in some ways because it's about it's it's about history. It's about you know uh, you know and they're and they're doing you know they're going way out of their way to present stuff accurately, but uh, you know but what they choose to present is in a lot of ways a commentary on the times that they're going through, and uh, it's I mean the show itself was a. Um, an odd sort of, uh, you know, an odd idea, you know, when Sidney Lumet, who was one of the primary directors on it, or the primary director on it, uh, talks about it. He's like, well, look, this is going to sound silly now, but uh, but trust me, it really worked. Where uh, Walter Cronkite, uh, news anchor Walter Cronkite, who was actually not, you know, uh, early days of his career as a TV news anchor, uh, was, um, would present these uh, half-hour stories that are, are historical in nature and and it would it, you know to take you there as the audience you, the, the camera would sort of be the point of view of a reporter essentially uh who was interviewing uh the characters the the you know the historical characters within the context of this event that's going on so they would break out of uh, um you know, well, you know, break the fourth wall, talk directly to the camera, uh, directly interact with these in, in this sort of crazy anachronistic way with contemporary reporters who are talking to them about what's going on. But yeah, it was uh, and in fact, initially, there was a concern of how to present the newsmen. And at first yeah. they're like, well, we can't just have them in suits. That's not going to make sense. So let's put them in costumes. They're like, no, that's silly. Right. Although I think it was still only kind of over their shoulder or something. Right. We haven't really seen, I, I haven't seen any of these episodes. I, no. I, I don't know if they're seeable at all. Lumet said that I watched uh, one of his direct episodes yeah. or interviews about this. And he said by the fifth episode, they had figured out the, uh, the conceit of having uh, the actor. There's E.G. Marshall in The Death of Socrates as Aristophanes. Uh, addressing the camera directly. So it was by that fifth episode of the first season that they figured this out. And as you say, uh, I've got um, a piece of a Cronkite interview that we can play oh, yeah. a little bit uh, of two minutes of describing the show, his participation. 
And yeah, again, uh, CBS News, which had already in the radio days established itself as this top flight organization. And it was fun to obviously present these historic facts as news events and, and put it in that format. And this is an important show from an educational standpoint. Uh, schools and, and, and children were encouraged to watch this to understand real history because they took on real big historic moments, the signing of the Declaration, uh, the death of Socrates. Uh, another thing that we looked at as well was uh, the, uh, the... The Joan uh, of Arc episode. Joan of Arc uh, yes. and everything. But in a way, what we're, oh, sorry, William, let me just finish this one thing, though. But the, like, in a way, it's uh, the what we're presenting sounds like a pretty staid thing, you know, the, from the news department is this and that, right? But the reality is the people behind it were basically this triumvirate of blacklisted screenwriters, Walter Bernstein, Arnold uh, Manoff, and Abraham Polanski, who were uh, were not able to write the show under their real names. They, uh, you know, they used uh, multiple fronts and who would, uh, you know, who would take the, you know, name credit for it. And they would, you know, what, you know, they would, but they would churn out the, the scripts. And, you know, it was never entirely clear who, uh, you know, uh, I mean, this this makes looking and, you know, Kate Nickerson was one of the one of the, the front names. But like it, this, this makes actually like, you know, determining the credits of some of these shows a little bit confusing and murky because at the time they, you know, even Lumet, who was directing the show, he had no direct connection with, um, uh, you know, with with the writers. He couldn't talk to them. Uh, it was it was only through. um the producer Charles Russell, who would kind of relay notes and stuff, and uh, but they these three guys are were basically like, you know, they were using this as a way to to speak out against McCarthyism, as a way to like, uh, you know, to talk about the ideals that you know that they held, the ideals for the country, the, all of this sort of stuff, but do it through this uh, this this very stealthy way that you know that people would have a hard time criticizing although the, if people found out that they were writing for it it would have ruined the career of the producer it would have ruined the career of the you know of the people involved uh, you know other people involved who knew uh, and uh, you know the the producer uh, Charles Russell was not a uh, he was not a political guy at all he didn't he didn't th- you know he was an a, a self-described apolitical guy who like when I mean this is so apocryphal sounding, but when he recollected deal, uh, you know his his interaction with these guys, uh, you know he knew that it was them who was writing it. Of course. And when he when he inter, you know he basically asked them, you know, uh, you know, don't tell me your your politics, just tell me, do you want to overthrow the country or not? <laughs> right? And uh, and allegedly the response was, uh, no, we want to overthrow CBS. So, like, <laughs> which is hilarious, but probably yes, true. William, give your initial thoughts, and then I'll, I'll speak. Uh, well, to Gabriel's point about the stealth storytelling, I don't know if it was just because the only two I've seen are the Joan of Arc and Socrates, and both of these are about the final hours um, of persecuted individuals who have a choice to hold firm to what they believe in or to capitulate to the powers that be. So, I mean, 
Again, those are the only two I've seen, but that's pretty. But still, pretty I mean, it, it it's pretty relevant, you know. And the you know, and also the uh, the Declaration of Independence one was, you know, it, it's it's about struggling with those with with the issues of you know the rights. you know rights and about you know uh, you know uh, all of that stuff and and a struggle as well. They're not uh, they're not they're they're choosing to confront the stuff about slavery and and you know and uh, deal with the things that are not. Um, you know, not an easy, popular way to present this, you know. A couple of things we learned from the Lumet interviews, and again, can't stress it enough, go to the Academy of American Television for their oral history interviews. Unbelievable detail. But this one in particular, this Lumet one is great. Absolutely. And these three writers and Charles Russell and Lumet all worked on the show Danger Yes. before you are there. So Russell was very familiar with them and liked their, liked their work. And as Lomet describes it, the three writers basically formed a co-op that the three writers would work together. And depending on the volume of work they were able to get, they would help each other with scripts, finish them, given deadlines and things, and help establish these fronts. And, like, Kate Nickerson wasn't a pseudonym. She was a real person that would walk in and, and get a check and get taxed on the check by the government, and then they would reimburse her for all the expenses that she had to endure. Then they would have have to pay taxes as this writing co-op and everything. So it really was this very intricate, detailed scheme to to circumvent this interference uh, by CBS. And Lamette felt that uh, CBS was particularly targeted because of its news staff. And here's some of the reporters... These are the reporters that I believe worked on the uh, Joan of Arc show. Uh, Bill Stout, Todd mm-hmm. Hunter, Grant Holcomb, and uh, Ned Calmer. And again, Cronkite narrating. Uh, but but truly, uh, Roger, uh, uh, rather not Roger Mudd, um, uh, uh, 60 Minutes. Um, um, Chris, uh, Mike Wallace. Yes, Mike Wallace was on there. Charles Collingwood was on there. All the top newsmen of CBS were part of this show and, uh, and ask, asking these questions. And apparently they were the real target. And the people that were trying to bring them down were a combination of, there was this guy named, I believe, Anderson, who owned a chain of grocery stores. And he was the one, and and, then represented basically middle America of, oh, uh, let's say Jell-O sponsors a show and and supports blacklisted actors and writers. I'm no longer going to carry Jell-O in my chain of stores that went all across the East Coast and the Midwest. Well, then it be kind of became this storm and a domino effect of the sponsor finding out they're angry. They contact the network. The network gets angry, and it becomes this big thing. There was a publication called Red Channels that was, and also another another group and publication was the American Legion and, and Counter Strike. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. right. And Red Channels would list writers and producers and directors and actors, and if you were in there. As, as suspected communists, then it would be that much tougher to get work. Uh, and of course, it, there was little or nothing that was actually like, I mean, these, these were things like, you know, voting for a presidential candidate, you know, uh, going yeah. to, uh, you know, like, you know, going to an event. I mean, uh, um, you know, like very, uh, you know, like, and it doesn't fucking matter, either, right? Like you could be, you know, uh, you you could also just the, these, you know, you could be a communist, you could be a member of the party, you could these could be your values, and this, you know, and clearly, just the way that the question is framed makes it into 
is somebody guilty or innocent when essentially you are a person who, you know, is just a citizen who has different beliefs than, uh, you know, than, than the prevailing, um, you know, sentiment at the time. This, this milieu is where we get the phrase, have you, are, are you now or have you ever been, right? That's exactly sure. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but it didn't really, I mean, it wasn't like they, um, I mean, a lot of the ways that they dealt with this stuff were very kind of murky and it wasn't like there were clear rules or something. People could just get paid off to get off of the, you know, list to some extent. There were, you know, uh, and even, uh, you know, look, I am not going to say a damn thing bad about Sidney Lumet, uh, but the, you know, but in that, uh, even in that interview, he becomes incredibly uncomfortable when talking about this and talking about whether or not he signed a loyalty oath at CBS and whether or not, you know, I mean, because it's an uncomfortable, you know, situation and topic and everything, but, you know, he sort of dodges whether he ever signed the loyalty oath. He, you know, he tells a story about how he, you know, uh, you know, how he had to go and uh, he didn't, he never got blacklisted. Right. And how he had to go and talk to people and stuff. But like, these are all things that uh, are all happening behind closed doors, you know, and uh, you know, for all of these people. And, you know, so knowing the exact history of all this and, you know, especially since uh, you know, you want to present yourself in a good light. Some, some people could be more, more incriminated by some of these things, you know, it's just, you know, in, in retrospect, right. Uh, you know, all of it is so murky and difficult to figure out exactly, you know, it's, it's sort of unknowable exactly how a lot of this stuff worked behind the scenes. Right. Because they, the people that were, had to go in and I've got a photo of the CBS executive that was in charge of vetting uh, people. That was Dan O'Shea. And here he is right now. Ironic, uh, leaving CBS in this New York times article from 55 to uh, get a position at RKO and Dan was also a studio executive, I believe, for um, Gone with the Wind uh, producer. Uh, Selznick. Yeah. yeah, David O. Selznick. And, uh, O'Shea, and, and Lament actually goes into detail of what it was like talking to O'Shea and, you know, some of the questions they asked. And even at the end, he's like, I, I, he said it was a friendly conversation. And he said, Dan, why, why are you doing this? And he said, well, better me than, than somebody even more, mm. you know, evil. Basically, even again, even Dan O'Shea didn't really consider himself a villain in this thing. Uh, Catholic guy, Cat- the Catholic Church also very tied to the anti-communist movement. Yeah, of, I mean, of- uh, but the, the I think uh, Lumet's point also there, though, is that everybody can delude themselves into thinking that they're yes. not, you know, they're not part of the problem and that they're right. somehow the bulwark against things being even worse. You know, and it's a little bit that sort of uh, Lord of the Rings thing. You know, you you know, everybody thinks that that with you know, if they have the ring, they're going to do something good with it, right? You know, and it, but the uh, you know the the sort of evil behind it corrupts everybody. No question. So you know, it, it's uh, but I also read you know both him at CBS, but I also read uh, you know in that oral history of television the uh, uh, you know uh, basically. Everybody, you know, executives who were the ones who had to deal with this, they basically all said something similar. I don't, you know, I'm uncomfortable with this, but if I wasn't doing it, somebody even worse would be doing it. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, um, in the Socrates uh, play, there are a lot of amazing uh, bit parts. Yeah. Um, And uh, for instance, here right away, uh, in the middle there, there's our friend friend from Outer Limits, Robert Culp. and our friend from, uh, uh, you know, great independent cinema, uh, John Cassavetes. That's absolutely right. 
<laughs> I, I went to um, Accidental Genius, uh, yeah. biography of uh, yeah. Cassavetes. I couldn't find a specific mention of this show, but he does talk about his love for doing live TV and and um, the freedom that he believed he had as a performer and everything. Yeah, and the, you know, and and there you, know, he, 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 you can see Paul Newman, a very young Paul Newman. Yeah, like I could not even find him. <laughs> like uh, I but, struggled uh, for a long time to find a, a captain. Yeah. Yeah, but you, I mean, certainly just to William's point about John Cassavetes, I mean, like live TV, live drama is exactly, you know, speaks to, to his instincts in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm sure he felt constrained by this as well because he was just somebody who desperately wanted to, like, you know, do this kind of messy independent work uh, that he, you know, that he, he made, you know, these, these very, uh, you know, like Shadows, uh, his first film in the you know, late 50s and, you know, all these sort of semi-improvised movies that were, that were very, like, direct and about characters and humans and stuff. And so much of that is what... <laughs> You know, well, yeah, you know, I mean, about yeah. people instead of, you know, uh, faces. Just, yeah, instead of whatever, you know, and the uh, like, so, I mean, so much of that is what we've been talking about. Marty and all these things, you know, the, that kind of directness of character, even though it's a, maybe a little bit less apparent in this show, you know, because it has kind of a, a more of a scheme to it. Uh, but you can totally see how that would be Casavetti's thing. Once again, uh, here's on the left, uh, Richard Kiley. Uh, who we know from Patterns, of course. Yes, uh, yeah. One of our first uh, program and stuff. And uh, yeah, there's Socrates on the right. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you who the actor was who played Barry Sonic. Jones. Oh. oh, that was Barry, Barry Jones. He, and he played the grieving father in the Borderlands episode of The, the Outer Limits, which oh, we've yeah. all talked well, about. Right. William, I, that would that absolutely would have snuck away from awesome. me. Awesome, yeah, I didn't get that either. Good job. And he Super. also... Go ahead, go ahead, he, please. He also played um, John Milton... In this very program, but um, I haven't seen that one. But I w- would really like to. Yeah. I honestly, well, as you guys know, the only things I found on YouTube were Socrates and um, for complete shows. Yeah, Socrates and uh, jo- and uh, not Joan of Arc, the Declaration of Independence. Yes, I even grabbed screen caps from the Declaration of Independence. But I did for Joan of Arc, which I found on the Internet Archive. And uh, there's uh, Dina Lund, I believe, is her name, uh, and uh, she. Made a handful of movies. I, ironically, uh, the romantic lead in the very first uh, Martin and Lewis film, My Friend Irma, based on the radio play, and uh, and also My Friend Irma Goes West, their second film. Uh, but also uh, another one of their films, uh, I want to say What's the Worst That Could Happen? Uh, yeah, and, and it was another vehicle for Martin and Lewis. But no, she, you know, again, yeah, she was kind of, this is around that same time maybe a year or two before when she was in My Friend Irma that she's playing Joan of Arc. She has a, a slew of live TV credits, um, uh, including um, the Lux Video Theater, Ford Television, General Electric, DuPont, and Schlitz Playhouse, which I didn't even know. <laughs> Got to crack one open for Schlitz. Um, a liquor bowl, yeah. And the Joseph Cotton Show, which uh, I think is cool. I really liked her in this performance um, yeah. Did all of us see the Joan yeah. of Arc one? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just, um, being a lifelong Joan of Arc uh, enthusiast, uh, I, I, I was happy to see it pop up when John brought it up. And um, I, I, liked, I liked the staging and everything. And um, one of the things about both the programs, the Socrates and the Joan of Arc one, I thought was interesting, is we talk about the reporter who's sort of like an interloper from the modern era in the past, 
but they never speak directly to the subject. They they talk to their like friends and enemies and sort yeah. of get sort of this, you know, this sort of uh, periphery. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting because it kind of sets apart, you know, our the, the person being interrogated. They're sort right. of at arm's and length. And the whole show is about contextualizing these things, right? It's it's about making it something that is uh, relatable to the present, right? So, I mean, that makes sense. Can I? I'm going to play the Cronkite piece. It's about two minutes long. Sounds good. Yeah. But here's uh, Cronkite from an NPR interview, uh, just, or I should say an NPR report, because he's really just narrating, describing the You Are There experience. You Are There also had a less visible problem, one so potentially dangerous that many, including myself, were not permitted to know about it. It was the blacklist. The reassuring thing about a hot war is that you know where the bullets are coming from. But the Cold War offered no such clarity, especially when politics became a barometer of loyalty. Blacklisting was television's way of fighting a contest of ideas, not bullets. The blacklist was as secret and covert as the subversives it imagined itself to be fighting. It assumed that communism was an intellectual contagion, and that it could infect Americans through television if the medium were not properly screened for subversive ideas. It kept many talented people from working without ever telling them why. In presenting the complexities of history on You Are There, Charlie Russell, our producer, was not willing to play the blacklist game or concern himself with the politics of his talent. When the three most literate New York writers available for the series turned out to be blacklisted, he secretly hired them. For the first two seasons, virtually every You Are There script was written by either Walter Bernstein, Arnold Manoff, or Abraham Polanski, none of whom I ever knew or was permitted to meet. You Are There never treated the blacklist directly, of course, or the larger issue of McCarthyism, and nobody believed it should, but history was rich with striking parallels. It offered no shortage of ways to deal obliquely with matters of dissent and intellectual freedom. In our first six months alone, we tackled Joan of Arc, the Salem Witch Trials, the Magna Carta, and the Dreyfus Case. 399 B.C. The death of Socrates. You are there. But ironically, the farther back into history we went, the more contemporary the parallels became. So there you go. That's um, cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it yeah. was it was great to hear him talking about that. And again, isn't it interesting how Russell compartmentalized the writers to really protect the other people so that, God forbid, they should be interrogated? I, I don't know. I've never been that educated. Right, yeah. Although never. also it's a little bit about protecting himself, too. Like he, it would ruin everybody involved if they knew, anybody who knew. So, you know, like keeping them away helps him as well. Not a criticism. It's smart. Uh, and, um, but do I, you, I, I, go ahead. Do you gentlemen know, was it pretty much an open secret or was it? No, really no, not, no, no, like, uh, Lumette didn't know until quite a ways in, uh, that, uh, you know, that who, who was actually writing these scripts. And then, it, and then when, after he knew he, he was, he said that he started to like pick up on just the style of, you know, who wrote what this mm -hmm. is the kind of just elegant writing of uh, Abraham Polanski or, you know, whatever, you because know, they, so. had, they had worked with them on danger for a couple of years prior yeah. to there. 
This right. Group. But I mean, I don't think that they, I mean, I think it was a similar setup on danger though. Right. Like they didn't no. know they were here. Right. No. Or did they? No, it was, it was, I think really things intensified during the, you are there period. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I, as I understood uh, Lumet's description of all of this, I could be wrong. But I, that I think that they, I believe that they were already blacklisted in that because I don't think that they came to do, they, they all had other careers. Right. And the, I mean, Abraham Polanski was, uh, was a, he was a screenwriter. He wrote, you know, uh, um, body and soul, uh, and, uh, the boxing movie. And he, you know, he wrote and directed force of evil and, you know, it was like, it was the blacklisting in, uh, as I understand it, it was the blacklisting in Hollywood and the features that that kind of brought him to New York and then, you know, and then put him in this position where the, they started trying to write, you know, all of them were writing television that way. Um, but although, you know, I mean, like, it was basically just movies and television that were, you know, were affected by this, uh, you know, publishing and Broadway were never affected by it. That's right. The that blacklist. Yeah. I I read today that uh, that particular writer, even like some 40 years after or so, would still not name the scripts that he had done under various names. Are you saying Polanski? Polanski? Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe, but although, uh, the, I mean, I have this book of his uh, of his screenplays for it, so clearly some of them he did. Uh, oh. But um, the uh, but like it's. Um, it is still a little, it is unclear exactly who's responsible for what. It's also weirdly unclear which ones Lumet directed. <laughs> because, I mean, their, their credit was, I don't know why that would be so unclear, but like uh, maybe it's just that he talks about ones that he didn't necessarily direct frequently in the interviews. He talks about the Joan of Arc one, which is not credited to him. And he talks about uh, the Declaration of Independence one in a, in a different clip from American Masters or something. And uh, uh, which is also one that's that's either not credited him or doesn't have a credit. I don't well, know. Well, as, as said, oh, I'm sorry. Please continue. No, and I think that the maybe the Joan of Arc one is credited to Polanski, but I'm not sure that he. Yeah. You know, it, it, right. Which, again, on IMDb, the, it is but under uh, under the Kate Nickerson. Uh, yes. Yeah. Or front. Right. right. Um, Lumet said because for a while he did both shows, and as Russell produced both shows, Danger and You Are There. And he said, when I, when you had two shows, two half-hour shows in the same week, he said you really had eight shows in your head because you had not only the shows that were airing, but you were casting the show that was going to air the following week. You were building sets and everything for two weeks in advance, and you were writing the, or, or uh, looking over the scripts for three weeks in advance. So it really was keeping like four shows in your head. And he said, finally, one had to give. He gave up danger to continue on. You are there because it was a more prestige show. And also he went on to do other work for both networks, NBC and CBS. So. And he, and kind of the way that people ended up directing television at the times, they would sort of rise up through the ranks of being an assistant director. The assistant directors were like basically the in control of whatever camera was not on at the moment. So they like, they would be lining up the next shot and, you know, or, you know, helping to arrange that, That's you know, right. while whatever was on camera was on camera. Uh, and you know, that, that led him into directing this stuff. But, uh, the, the first AD on, um, uh, on you are there for most of it was for a lot of it anyway, it was John Frankenheimer who then, uh, went on to, mm-hmm. you know, obviously direct Manchurian candidate later, but also the comedian that we looked at right? and, and, and some of the there. best later, you know, live TV episodes. And in fact, uh, Lumet was an assistant to Yul Brenner, the fine actor, the King and I, and 
Yeah, he's uh, who brought him in. He he's yes. the the you know the story tells us you know uh, no nobody over here knows what they're doing, but uh, but you can make money. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, uh, Lumet had come from theater, so he uh, clearly was a you know capable director. And yeah, and really again, that Lumet, I mean that that American Masters PBS documentary is fantastic for a two hour thing. The American Television Oral History Lumet interview is even greater yes. because he really gets much more into detail how he got into television, the mechanics of learning how to direct and everything, the differences between the two networks in terms of uh, camera shot philosophy, really, really hmm. interesting stuff. And yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, great. And, and again, this man was a genius. He wrote his Making Movies uh, book and then so many great films to come later in his career and everything. But again, at this You Are There blacklist point, uh, this could have cost him his career. And a lot of these people did willingly go uh, to people like uh, Dan O'Shea and uh, and and give them whatever information they could because they wanted to keep their jobs. I mean, uh, he never went into naming names or anything like that. And again, thankfully, being protected by Russell, wouldn't be able to give a Polanski and company. So, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, it was. Uh, again, I mean, that's why. I mean, these these, especially the Socrates episode. That to me was the most the yes. more, most effective. Yes. Uh, and also what a what a cast as well. Yeah. Um, I forget, Amazing. Go I forget ahead. this guy's name here in the center, this character actor. Henry something, I believe, and I'm gonna look up on the cast to see if I can find his name. But he's a familiar face that you've seen a million times in various TV shows over the years. One so, thing one thing that struck me about the Death of Socrates episode was the blocking of the actors many times seemed to me to be reflective of classical paintings where you would have like a frozen tableau of everyone arranged. And in particular, there would be characters closer to the camera with their faces turned and kind of like an oblique angle. Um, and I don't know if, you know, it was specific paintings, but it did remind me of very much of that kind of um, uh, blocking. Yeah. And another, uh, which is a very good point actually. Uh, and, uh, but another, like another of the guys in that photo that you just showed, uh, uh, the guy off to the to the right, uh, you know, uh, Crito, I think, uh, it, the, um, you know, on frame right, uh, he's, you know, he was a guy that I'm like, where do I know that guy from? And he's also in the Declaration of Independence one. And uh, I looked it up, and he, he's he's uh, um, Joseph Anthony is his name. Right, oh, is it? Yeah, uh, it's who's Crito. Uh, Okay, well, maybe I have the wrong things, but whichever the guy in the uh, on the on the you know on the top right of frame uh, is uh, he was uh, he's in this movie called The Reckless Moment that I just watched. It's a uh, Max Ophel's uh, noir movie uh, from uh, around a, around the same time, maybe like a, a year or two earlier, and uh, um, and he's just one of those actors that you kind of see around in small parts and stuff. But uh, you know, but he seemed to get a lot of work on this show. Yeah, here I'm, I'm confirming. I want to see if that is him. Uh, you said a reckless. Uh, I mean, I think it's Shepard Strudwick, but ah, uh, that's yeah. a different actor. And I will bring yeah. you who uh, he was in uh, Socrates in a second. Uh, oh no! Excuse I mean, that's me. how he's listed on IMDb. Yeah, that's interesting. Both guys are listed as Crito, but that's. I think the IMDb. I, the I don't I think we can be going by very you know credibly by the IMDb on this. I mean, that is the actor I'm talking about, and he is in that other movie. I'm not exactly sure who he plays in the thing yeah, because. I think that like two two people are credited as Plato as well. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, crazy, you know, yeah, including Paul Newman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Accounts, so, 
And it's like, no, it was Cassavetes. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, again, obviously, yeah, so. obviously, there's not great credits for this, and and everybody isn't yeah. spending all their time figuring it out on IMDb, yeah. which are often wrong about things anyway. So, ironically, too, and I'm so bummed that the film doesn't exist, but according to Lamette, they did the death of Jesse James, yes, and, uh, and James Dean played Bob Howard in that production. Yeah, yeah, uh, that'd yeah. be nice to um, see. Yeah, Robert, uh, yeah, Robert, Robert Ford. Right, Robert, Robert Ford. I mean, Robert Ford or Mo Howard or yeah, Larry Mo Fine. What, yeah, what he, played, he played Mo Howard and was, Larry Fine. Ultimately, in, yeah. in orbit. Well, at least yeah. IMDb has him listed as both. Yeah, both. that's what IMDb says. Yes. Look, I know this, this this IMDb thing is a problem because I have credits on my IMDb page, the IMDb page that are wrong, and you can write to them forever, and they will never change it. So you know, oh, they're the worst. That's hilarious. Anybody can put a credit on there, and then you're stuck with it because they'll never change it. I really was excited to find uh, this O'Shea picture, though. And, yeah, there's uh, – I mean, uh, you know, Jim Aubrey was the smiling cobra, but look at this guy. Yeah. This is the guy that could really cost you your job at CBS. Right. And, uh, you know, again – and it was interesting and true. And, again, Lamette and, and all the accounts I've read of uh, William Paley, the chairman of CBS, his friendship with Ed Murrow – um, Lamette wasn't even certain if uh, Paley, as much as the CBS news staff was the target for a lot of these communist attacks, to the point where they drove one of the CBS anchors, Don Hollenbeck, to suicide. I mean, this was really relentless shit. And a lot of like great newsmen really had to go to the mat to clear their names. Yeah. And Charles Collingwood was another guy that fought a lot of anti-communist things. But either, as Lumet said, to please Ed Murrow, because Ed Murrow had the strength. I really hope we'll do a, a kinescope about Murrow, maybe either sure. uh, person to person or uh, see it now, his new show. But regardless, uh, Murrow really did have power. And Paley was a friend of his going back to the war days where they really bonded. And Murrow really was in charge of CBS News. And, um, you know, even before he, he made his direct attack, on Joe McCarthy, uh, there really was this feeling of, don't you dare touch my news staff. And either Paley just acquiesced because he was Murrow's friend, or for a long time he shared that same spirit of, yeah, you're not going to screw with my guys, and I'm standing by my guys. And it's kind of cool. Again, there were still nervous moments. I love Good Night and Good Luck. I think it's a great movie that that does a great job of that. I also love the HBO uh, biopic about Murrow that Daniel Travati uh, did. As Ed Murrow, I think both are really good, uh, interesting things. And I've read many uh, Ed, Ed Murrow biographies as well. So, uh, yeah. and I think very inadvertently, he's part of this picture as well. And, you know, speaking of that, um, you know, the Murrow show where he stands up to McCarthy, they on You Are There, they went out of their way to deliberately do uh, uh, do the uh, episode about Galileo that, uh, and, and, you know, that would run right around that time yes uh you know i mean uh you know i mean all this i mean uh polanski is quoted as saying that they're that they're basically waging a kind of guerrilla war against mccarthyism Mm. through this show by like the the subjects that they chose and the way that they they tried to use them to come out and what was going on at the moment absolutely that does show though i mean sadly how you know it's a plug and play methodology whether it's communism or something else you yeah. know what i mean historically yeah. yeah absolutely or you know why i mean the and and just the 
the fervor that can be, you know, uh, stirred up in people for something that they don't understand or necessarily actually care about, like, you know, vaccines. Hey, oh, you know? 100%. Good Lord, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and and really, again, another another show we should explore regarding the blacklist is the Goldbergs, the uh, kind of uh, drama comedy uh, that Gertrude Berg created. Uh, her, her main co-star, Philip Loeb, who played her husband on the show, was another uh, actor that was persecuted by the blacklist who ultimately killed himself. Uh, I mean, that's the thing, man. I mean, there were real career-ending moments. Uh, my my good acquaintance, Bud Schulberg, who I got to know in his later years, was a Hollywood screenwriter that was forced to uh, testify to HUAC, uh, was genuinely, as at least he explained to me, in conversation, afraid of the Red Scare, uh, was a collaborator with Ilya Kazan, um, was compelled to name names and uh, is one of those guys that, you know, certainly uh, like Kazan himself was kind of shunned by uh, several circles of Hollywood and stuff because of his cooperation. Um, but I mean, again, I, I honestly can't say, and I consider myself a pretty hardcore First Amendment right liberal, but when your livelihood is being threatened uh, and your career could end, I mean, there were people like Dalton Trumbull that were willing to suspend their career, uh, or not willing, but obviously went to jail and uh, on their you know principles and stuff wouldn't name names, and it cost them several years of their career and death threats and other things. Uh, you know, I mean that that Trumbo movie is uh, worth right, very good, but yeah, the um, uh, I think, <laughs> but I think it's a good. He got a few. He got a few nominations, but that's fine. Uh, oh, because there's nothing like Oscars to tell you what's good. Uh, sure. the, uh, but like. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, to that point, uh, it is difficult. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I entirely sympathize with the, with the people who are blacklisted, but it's also, uh, I'd be full of shit to say that I wasn't, you know, I mean, like I'm, I'm the, I'm, we're, we're all talking about this from a very safe remove. I mean, in theory, uh, in and, theory. <laughs> you know, but, uh, or at least a safe remove from this particular period and the incidents there, 100%. not necessarily the one we're going through right now, but, uh, the, but like, I, I think that it's, it would be pretty smug and, uh, hypocritical to, to act like we all know how we would have dealt with these things. You know? Was yeah. Trumbo, uh, did he do... For, forgive me if I, if I'm getting this wrong. Did he do Roman Holiday and they added him back in later, in the credits sequence? Is that I, I, I mixing I don't up remember about things? that, but certainly Spartacus and uh, uh, well, yeah, that was yeah. post, but pre. I'm trying to remember the because I wonder did, which movie I'm thinking of. I, I thought he got credit for Roman Holiday. I I, and, I remember seeing a restoration where they put his name back in, and I'm just blanking which film it was, but it was after you know. A 50th anniversary restoration or something like now we can admit that he wrote the damn movie well and right, as, right. Gabe, as Gabe was saying Socrates was the risk that producer Kurt Russell was able to say uh, no this guy wrote it and he's like we're putting his name up this is 1960 Spartacus yes in, yeah, in the yeah. case of Spartacus and also at the time um, Otto Preminger wanted him for Exodus yes as well so, but but Spartacus was first, but no, I mean, and truly, as I learned uh, after the fa- in the in the nineties, uh test of or um, hearings moved from Washington to Chicago and continued well into the sixties. So that was a real. I yeah. mean, even though McCarthy was 
taken down during the army uh, McCarthy hearings, and you have that wonderful piece of news of uh, real footage of uh, Joseph Welch, the uh, judge, saying, that's enough, Senator. Have you no sense of decency at long last? Who, by the way, Joseph Welch in uh, Anatomy of Murder playing a judge. Mm, uh, right. yeah. But uh, So Preminger, yeah. Yes, that's right. A premature film. Absolutely. But that's, you know, I mean, that's the thing is we we think of McCarthyism and the Red Scare and the Blacklist ending with uh, people like Murrow taking McCarthy down on See It Now, his new show. But in reality, you know, it, it really did take several years afterwards. Yeah. And, it finally and went away. To, to William's uh, Dalton Trumbo point, uh, he's correct that it was um, originally uncredited uh, for Roman Holiday and then uh, restored later. I mean, but other things uh, that uh, I mean, Dalton Trumbo didn't work on the on this TV show we're talking about. But, uh, you know, but just as a blacklisted writer, he uh, he also uh, a couple movies, The Prowler, this movie uh, that Joseph Losey directed and uh, the and Gun Crazy, Joseph H. Lewis directed movie. These these are kind of great seminal noir movies that he wrote without getting credit initially. And uh, and I just highly recommend both of those movies. Well, and that's why I mean, Gabe, I respect your opinion that you didn't like Trumbo, but I thought they did an interesting job showing a lot of the movies that uh, like the King brothers made uh, from the fifties that were not even uh, B movies. These were Z movies and stuff. And Trumbo would write these scripts and submit them. And also was part of a, another co-op of writers that, would, uh, you know, provide scripts for Hollywood under assumed names or it's, no credit at all. It's absolutely an interesting story. Yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Um, you know, and as a lot of these are, I mean, uh, so we also took uh, a look at The Front, uh, you know, uh, the uh, 1976 uh, movie directed by Martin Ritt and uh, written by Walter Bernstein, one of the, you know, triumvirate of uh, You Are There uh, uh, writers. And um, it's, uh, you know, which is a pretty damn interesting movie, if a little bit on the uh, unbelievable wish fulfillment side at the end. Uh, you know, this uh, uh, this movie was not, uh, you know, it was not made by Woody Allen, but he starred in it. And uh, it's, um, you know, and he plays the the kind of, uh, you know, the the guy who's just a, a friend of uh, of one of the blacklisted writers who, who ends up being a front for this, you know, group of three guys who uh, who are basically represent, you know, Bernstein and uh, Manoff and uh, Polanski and. Uh, you know, and it and it kind of deals with the complexity of how you know, like him trying, you know, trying to pass himself off as the writer, and uh, the you know, and how he how the Allen character gets drawn into um, you know to having to confront all these same issues that the you know that the blacklisted writers did. Uh, it's, I mean, the uh, and like I say, the ending of it uh, is is such incredible wish fulfillment about the way that I'm sure that everybody wishes they could have dealt with all of this stuff. But it's also thrilling. Right. Like, it's hard not to love it. I mean, he goes in, you know, he goes in front of this, uh, you know, sort of, you know, in, into the meeting that he sort of tribunal thing uh, where he, he's expected to name names and uh, he basically just gets up and goes, you know, and he has had no real spine and no uh, no values throughout this entire thing gets up and it's, it's like, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I disagree with, you know, with the, you know, what you're doing here. And, um, and also you can all go fuck yourselves. And <laughs> that's the end of it. He gets taken off to prison. The end of the movie. It's, it's, it's great. 
It's great. The, uh, in the I want to say it was the '90s. Guilt by Suspicion is a uh, Irving Guilty Winkler. by Suspicion. Yeah, it's like yeah. '90 or '91, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's uh, Irving Winkler. I want to say was the producer. Yeah, Ir- Irwin Winkler. Yeah, the, he who produ- he had produced uh, Raging Bull and Good and Rocky and worked with Scorsese and Rocky worked with Scorsese a lot. Yeah. Yes, and De Niro plays a similar character. Well, he no, I shouldn't say similar. In the front, Woody Allen is a front for these writers. De Niro is a filmmaker that is uh, hounded on the Hollywood side by the blacklist. And essentially, it's another De Niro, oh, you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me. I mean, and it's, again, wish fulfillment moment. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it would have been great to have a De Niro, you know, do all that stuff. And some of them did uh, leave screaming and still love the Hollywood 10 and wouldn't take the bullshit of the Un-American Activities Committee and stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that nobody stood up to them. I'm just sure. saying, like, that presenting it oh, the yeah. way that it does in the movie is definitely a kind of, you know, it's it's yeah. to, you know, it's it's just to go to have that sort of release of, oh, my God, somebody just said the thing that, that everybody feels about it. You and, know? In, and in the front, you find out that a lot of people, both in front of the camera, the actors, and behind the camera, are all blacklisted people. Yeah. So Herschel Bernardi is in there as one of the actors. He was right. blacklisted. Right. Uh, uh, what's his face from Funny Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum? Uh, and the producers. Zero Mustel. Zero Mustel, of course. Yeah. yeah. Brain. Uh, third show today, everybody. You'll forgive me for <laughs> knowing names. But yeah, Mustel was blacklisted and so many others as well. And uh, so it, it really, it's, it's, I think it's a great movie. It's on Amazon Prime right now if you're curious to watch The Front. And also, Martin Ritt was uh, was he was at the time, you know, involved in all this stuff. He was blacklisted. He he and uh, Walter Bernstein were very close friends, uh, you know. So it, you know, all these people were were deeply involved in all this stuff. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there you go. Uh, um, we've, we've solved the blacklist. Yeah, we have not even scratched the surface of a blacklist, but the uh, but it's an enormous topic. None of us are experts, but the uh, but it's uh, but it's so directly related to this uh, this show, and I just think that it's such an interesting thing that the uh, you know that they would approach the uh, the problems that uh, um, I, I disagree that this is uh, that this is analogous to cancel culture, but uh, but the uh, but like the the way that the um, uh, that, like, you know, Bernstein and, and Manoff and Polanski would, you know, took what's the worst thing that could happen to them in their careers and, you know, and turn it around and make it something where they could they could still express themselves and still talk about, the, the you know, the issues that they think are important. How, how do you not think, and I'm just asking from a, from a discussion standpoint, how is this not similar to cancel culture? Well, I don't think that it's well. A, I don't think that this is like that. This, we could have a whole show about this, but uh, you know, and I think that the context of what we're talking about is not. I mean, the, okay, is 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 cancel culture something that's driven by government and institutions, and you know, uh, like uh, or well, is, you know, I'm not going to argue about this. I don't. I don't, I don't really right, not. You'll forgive me. William will, will get uncomfortable. He's our guest, take, and we should not be mean in front of him. I will take a minute and say that there is a similarity, and that there were people in government that fostered cancel culture in the same way that the anti-communist one was fortified by people in government. And I will say that it is a social commentary without getting into the granular uh, subtle differences. Between yeah, exactly. Don't get into subtlety so that we can just paint everything with a big brush. Much like 
what they were dealing with on You Are There, they were able to take a metaphor of what's happening, what was happening at the moment, put it in their fiction, and it did impact the fiction of the moment. And I do think cancel culture is impacting the fiction of the moment. So it's okay. Well, I'm not saying that that's not true. Of course okay, that's true. That's, Any broad cultural thing even, is going to affect the, the you know, what you know, the, what people express in the moment, I, you know, uh, good or bad, whatever, you know, I mean, but I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that it is a, an institutionalized thing that is targeting particular people the way that, that, uh, you know, that the blacklist did. I would agree with you at the moment. I would say that in the previous presidential administration, it was. I, I don't, I think that that's, I think that talking about this, Talking about cancel culture is something that's so nebulous compared to talking about a specific thing, which was the blacklist. Like it was a specific thing where specific groups of people in particular trades were targeted to, you know, uh, in, in, you know, in, in terms that we can, you know, nail down as opposed to this big, vague idea of cancel culture that I don't think is some is, is, I don't think there's an appropriate way to, frame a whole bunch of shit that's going on culturally that doesn't, you know, uh, that is, you know, is not all negative. I, I don't I, think there is a positive to the blacklist. I don't think I that there was, that. you know, I don't think that I, there was like, oh, you know, hey, but these people were, uh, you know, were doing good by getting rid of some of those communists. I oh, think I, that this is, this is a, you know, this is something that's much, you know, uh, it's I much vaguer and more difficult. And I just apologize to William. He's a guest in our house. And we're fighting like this in front of them. It's terrible. It, it's, it's it's the discussion, and, and truly, I'm glad that we are talking about this. And William, I don't. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But again, I think that from the broad standpoint of not knowing how to like, what does it mean when you are accusing me of being a communist? And there's a laundry list of things that they would just apply. I do think that sometimes cancel culture can get out of control. Well, and there I, is initial. Uh, let me finish. All I'm saying is that there is uh, sometimes that initial acu- accusation that is anal- analogous to the red scare. I That's am, what I'm saying. I'm disagreeing with the uh, with the premise that cancel culture is a singular thing and uh, the the way that the blacklist is. And I, you know, uh, and you know. And as, uh, you know, uh, as, as Ed points out uh, in the comments, this is, uh, you know, I mean, th- that was very much driven by institutions of government, you know, and there were, you know, the, with the FBI and people to back this stuff up. And, I, and a, a general sense that there are, you know, uh, you know that, that people get canceled, you know, to the extent that that really hap- even happens, which is, uh, you know, debatable compared to, you know, to the, the, the very serious specifics of the blacklist. I just don't think that they are comparable things is what I'm saying. I, but I don't I even will... know that you can you can put, uh, you know, put cancel culture into as clear this clear box the way that it, it's, it's. I agree with that. I do agree with that. Go ahead, William. Well, I was just going to basically state the same thing. Just for the record, um, the three of us here can agree what the blacklist is or was, but I don't think the three of us could actually come to an agreement on cancel culture per se, because its power is in its slipperiness. Yes. Um, and the blacklist is a historical moment. I agree with that as well. Yeah. And maybe and maybe not using the phrase cancel culture is correct, but I do think in terms of the culture wars and the attacks on both sides sometimes can find itself slippery. 
Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the attacks on both sides are slippery is, a, is, is as broad a statement as you could possibly make about just culture in general and the way things go, as opposed to something where, you know, we have these very clear things that were, you know, that uh, levers of government were used to enforce. And there were very, very specific, uh, you know, there was very specific fallout for people. And they were, you know, uh, and they were denied jobs in a structural way that is not the case with, you know, in the terms that people use for cancel culture. No. Anyway, I like, uh, we, I like it. No, no, I like <laughs> so, it. Okay, so I guess we're basically done though. But so, we no, it's good stuff. stuff. So what? Uh, what? What's uh, uh, John? What? What are we going to cover next week? Assuming we're still talking to each other next week. We'll be talking next week. Um, <laughs> well, you know, honestly, Gabe, we were. Talking, so we're gonna we're gonna look at the defenders, right? The, I was uh, gonna say, yeah. you know, um, although who did I talk to? Uh, Mark Dematis, Steve Mateus, uh, yeah, might, might be interested in talking about the defender as well, but to accommodate him because he's on the East Coast and this is okay. Now. Yeah. Um. But, uh, you know, I mean, either way, I mean, he wouldn't. Well, I, I have no problem with rescheduling the stuff. Uh, I, you know, we, we should just figure out what we're going to talk about. Yeah. But, uh, we could, you know. but we could, well, we could lighten things up again uh, with Ernie Kovacs and look at Ernie Kovacs. We same. could definitely do that. I, I believe uh, next I'm, I'm telling John this on, on, in the show, but next week I can't do Thursday. So uh, so we'll oh. be doing it another day anyway. So it may be may make sense to reschedule with him. I will see what uh, Mark's. I mean, it might be a Sunday afternoon or something. I don't know. If yeah, that I, that could still be okay. We this is uh, a production meeting. So um, if the uh, <laughs> like if uh, like we'll we'll announce on social media what we're talking about next week uh, once we yeah. figured it out. Which we should have done our jobs before we started and figured all this out. But I was late uh, behind again. the scenes. I right. was late. We were all late. Okay, it was truly. <laughs> Can I close on uh, just one thing about the um, Joan of Arc episode? Because I said it privately and I'll say it publicly. There is a shot uh, in this in this episode that I just think is exemplary where they leave Joan in her cell and she's alone and she's sort of cowering um, on bended knee. And in the foreground of the shot is a candle. And they must have someone just off frame blowing on this candle because it starts small and then it grows large and starts flickering over Joan, uh, who's in the background of the shot. And I just thought it was such. I'll bring it up in a second. Nice, beautiful stuff. And uh, the funny thing about this is that I when, uh, you know, I listened to the Lumet interview and he talked at length about this Joan of Arc episode. Right. Which seemingly he did not direct. But, uh, you know, but when I was watching it, I was under the impression that he did direct it because mm-hmm. one of the things that he, uh, you know, in that interview, one of the things that movies that he lists as like a big awakening for him just as a um, a filmmaker was uh, Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is a, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is a movie that's very much about uh, about telling it through visuals and telling it through very specific uh, you know, uh, close shots. It's a, very much an art movie, right? Uh, you know, a, a, you know, Dutch, Danish. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and um, but uh, so I was I was watching it, thinking, oh, I can see where he was bringing in some of these influences. But apparently, he wasn't at all because he didn't direct the thing. But whatever, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but funny stuff. And yeah, he talks about I guess the smoke got so bad. Yeah. At that point, because of that, the literally. Uh, you know, uh, Crockett was choking and all that. Although, again, mm. I'm not sure I saw that 
in uh, the presentation that we saw. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't feel like that in the you know. I mean, but maybe just on stage, it felt like that more than you know. And they were probably trying to cut around it at the time. So. Could be. Could very well be. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, look forward to another uh, bout between uh, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder next week. As uh, those are heavyweights, by the way. Much oh, like. Is, are you talking about boxing, John? <laughs> yeah, I am talking about boxing. So. Uh, Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion about the blacklist and about you are there. Uh, I recommend you watch the death of Socrates on YouTube or on archive.org. You catch uh, the Joan of Arc episode. Both are incredible. I felt the Declaration of Independence a little dry in comparison. Uh, yeah, I, I, they, they all could lean a little towards dry, but it's but it, it's all very interesting contextually, and you know, and Absolutely. Like, it's it's a really good thing to talk about. I think. Indeed. So uh, join us uh, next time for Kinescope. And until then, uh, you know, uh, adjust your rabbit ears and uh, get better percep- uh, uh, reception. As reception? <laughs> yeah. And perception and the whole goddamn thing, whatever you want. All right. I screwed the pooch. Take care, everybody. We'll talk All next right. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.